Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by fly fishing legend, Davey Watton. Davey generously spent almost three hours with me discussing what it means to be a complete angler and how to get there. This is part one of our conversation, and we'll drop part two on the other side of the holidays. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend, and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. From now through Christmas Eve, if you purchase a Norvice gift card of $250 or more, you'll receive a coupon code for 25% off your next Norvice purchase. Folks, hit the easy button and take advantage of this great offer. And Tim just dropped the 2024 show schedule. Head over to www.nor-vice.com today to see if the Norvice team will be coming to a town near you. Now, on to our interview. Well, Davey, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Yes, thank you, Marvin. I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, okay. Insofar as that is concerned, well, that would be in, in about 1955. And um, that was largely brought about because where we lived on the farm, there was the river that ran through there. There were some, some ponds in the area as well. So as far as fishing was concerned, with a rod and line, my first experience really was going to the waters and messing around with nets and catching newts and, you know, various aquatic things there. And then I got to fishing. And mostly I fished at the time with night crawlers, worms, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you go in the yard and you dig them up, find them where the, all the livestock had been and stuff in the manure heaps and then, that, then go fishing. And that would result in catching the species of fish that were in that river. Most rivers over there in the UK, well, all of them actually, in fact, are cold water environments. There really are no warm waters in the UK, England, Ireland, Wales, or Scotland. And so you 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 catch different species in there. It could be roach, rudd, bream, carp, whatever the case may be, and trout, of course, because they would all basically live in the same environment, but there may be greater or lesser numbers of those specific species depending on that river. So, yeah, pretty much my earliest fishing memories were about that era, 1955, 1956. When did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> okay. Well, there used to be a, and I don't remember his name because it's going back so long. But anyway, there used to be this old fella. He'd come there and he'd fish the river for trout and he'd fly fish, obviously, to do that. And that fascinated me. And I used to watch him, you know, and he, he, he kind of talked to me about this and like, he'd catch these small browns, you know, about eight or 10 inches and he keep them and off he go. Anyway, one thing led to the other. Now, that said, I also, at that age, I had a 177 air rifle. And uh, I would walk around all the land and i shoot different things, to be honest about it, you know. And he asked me one time, I, if my memory served me right, I, I, I had, 
wax and burnt, and I don't remember what they were to this day, to be honest, but nevertheless, I showed him why I shot, and he wanted them for the feathers. That I recall, which he, he took. And anyway, he was the person that first put a rod in my hand, a fly rod, that is, and got me interested in how to cast a line on the water and fly fish. And I never forget to this day. The first trout I caught was an Alexander wet fly, which was the tail fly of the three flies that he was fishing at that time. And and to be honest about it, I guess water and fish has always been an attraction to me. End of story. You know, and that really led me into a pursuit that ultimately, you know, became my living, to be honest about it. And bear in mind, too, you know, over there in the UK, as you all know, you don't have to travel far to find various types of water. You know, you could fish the salt water one day and you could go fish a freshwater environment the next day. So, you know, that was no big deal. So I enjoyed fishing in the ocean as well as I did in freshwater. So we'd go there and fish at, at times of the year when the Atlantic cod came and goes to shore or whiting or different species of flatfish, whatever they were, you know, place or sand dabs and eels and whatever the case may be. And I also enjoyed very much fishing for coarse fish, as they know, coarse fish in the UK. The, the terminology is that really based on the fact that they're scaled fish, in, in, in other words, like carp, you know, and roach and bream, fish like that, whereas trout are not really a, a scaled fish like that. So that's why they're called coarse fish. And that's a lot of fun, too. So really, you know, to put things into perspective, my interests in fishing, period, were to catch fish, regardless of whether they were, you know, game fish, you eat trout, salmon or sea trout, freshwater species or saltwater species. I just love to be by the water fishing. Much to, at times, the, um, but let's put it this way, I gave my uh, parents hell because, you know, I'd take off on a bike and go somewhere. They really didn't know where I went, to be honest about it. And I'd come home with God knows what hours and like, where the hell have you been? And I, oh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I went fishing. Well, yeah, but you, and I guess back then, you know, there really wasn't the concerns about young people going off and getting hauled off and assaulted, if you know what I'm saying, particularly in the rural areas where we lived. And that was also, you know, I guess, part of my um, upbringing, if that's what I explained at one too. But, um, and then uh, to move on a little bit, you know, my parents decided that I needed a better level of education. And, you know, regular day schools were, I guess, in their opinion, somewhat limited. And so I ended up getting sent to a, a, a boarding school where they considered that I should get a better level of education. Well, I probably did, but more to the point, it was really advantageous to me because this particular school was an old big Victorian school on thousands of acres of land, and on that land was lots of different waters which contained fish. And so at every opportunity when we weren't in classrooms or other aspects of what we had to do, I was allowed to go and do what I wanted to do, which was to go fishing. And I would do that all the time. And it also, you know, built up my levels of skills and expertise in what I was doing. 
more to the point, one of the game masters, and I still remember his name, because Richard Butt, his name was, he was from Scotland. And he knew I had this great interest in wildlife, nature, and fishing. And he gave me a book and some fly time product that his father had owned. And I still have that book, which was W.C. Stewart. And that's what got me interested in tying flies. And that's moved on from there, you know. So a number of the uh, members of staff there also hunted. And ultimately, what would happen, they'd go out on their hunts and they'd come back with whatever it was, pheasants and partridges. They'd give them to me. And guess why they did? Because they wanted me to pluck the birds for them to eat. That's fine. I ended up with a lot of feather, which, of course, otherwise at that time, in the early 60s, I would not have got. And that was fine. But I was all part of, you know, if you like, um, my self-education process. Let's put it like that. And then, you know, when you read these books on the techniques of tying, by the days, shall we say, illustrations and this, that, and the other, they weren't always easy to understand because the terminology, you know, well, you know, you apply the legs to the flight. What the hell's that? You know, well, legs in old terminology was a hackle, you know, and there's terminology like that that at that time you didn't really put together exactly what it was. But if you looked at the illustration of the fly, you could figure it out. And of course, a lot of the very old catalogues of the 1800s and early 1900s had illustrations in there of those flies. They weren't pictures. Of course, they were actually paintings of those spies on that, this and the other. And then I got a book which really furthered my education in fly time knowledge by John Vineyard. And it was, um, it really described a lot of flies of universal use, whether they were from New Zealand or Australia, America, you know, and it really bore my outlook as far as what was going on around the world as far as the artificial fly was concerned, albeit a lot of material I no way could I get at that particular time in my life because there was no way to get it. Obviously, I did as years went by, but nevertheless, it opened up a whole new outlook for me as far as fly fishing, you know, and the relationship of fishing flies and catching fish, primarily trout, of course, not always, but, you know, primarily trout. And it was just a wonderment to me. And, you know, more to the point, I was fascinated by the materials, you know, golden pheasant. Where the hell did you find golden pheasant back in them times? You know, where you could, but I didn't know where you could. And all other exotic materials, so to speak, as opposed to, you know, the regular live birds that lived in your part of the world, whatever they were, you know. Of course, don't forget back in those times, they pretty much they shot whatever it was, and they used the feathers. It didn't matter whether they were songbirds or owls or whatever the case may be. They were part of the culture, so to speak, of creating artificial flies. Of course, most of those species now are protected, and rightly so. Even so, you know, there's still a market for those legally obtained, or if you can get all the museum specimens or something like that, and it gives you legal possession and use of those feathers to tie a lot of those flies, as they originally were, in the, whatever, the 1700s, the 1800s, because time's moved on now. So, but any respect, you know, 
ultimately, you know, by the time I was in my late teens, I had gotten proficient at time flights, pretty damn good. And not only that, I lived fairly close to, at that time then, a fishing tackle shelf. And of course, in those days, there was no such thing as a fly shop over there in the UK. There, there is today, but there wasn't then. They had to provide efficient equipment, whether you fish for, with a fly rod, whether you fish for the saltwater species, or you fish for coarse fish. So there was a, you know, a whole big variable in as the equipment that they sold. But this one particular place, it did sell flies. And they were the first place that bought flies from me. And not only that, they also had a limit of, a limit of uh, fly time material, which come from the company Evenia, which was the largest supply of fly time material in the UK, and still is, incidentally. And so that obviously further my abilities to tie more flies, because I could get these materials that otherwise weren't indigenous to the UK, so to speak. So, yeah, once I started to learn how to tie flies efficiently, I ended up, as I just said, you know, tying those flies more commercially. And of course, that being the case, you learn a lot more skill in tying and more to the point, different flies. I will tell you, though, interestingly enough, back in the earlier days, the vast majority of flies that I tied commercially were traditional wet flies and dry flies. Nymphs at that time had a very limited market so to speak. That dramatically changed. And the reason it did is, is not so much for the, the river angler, more so for the stillwater angler. The stillwater angling over there is big, big business. And that became more prevalent so far as the demand for flies for stillwater angling, albeit they still use, they call them lures there, you call them streamers, they have the same thing, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And they still use a lot of traditional wet flies. But nymphs became more in fashion, particularly those that represent the coronamids, which are a significant food base in still waters. And in still water, coronamids are large. They're not like little micro things you get on the rivers. So there was that. And there was a, a lot of publications started coming into at that time, you know, certainly in the um, late 60s and into the 70s. And that depicted more the use of nymph patterns or flies are somewhat at a caricature representation of food sources as opposed to flights of fancy, let's put it like that. And so ultimately, all of that increased my knowledge and skill levels because I was fortunate enough to start at the time when, to be honest about it, what had took place for about the last 50 or 100 years was still common practice. So I. My introduction into the world of fly fishing, both by the means and methods of angling, but also by, shall we say, the greater knowledge of uh, artificial flies that induce fish to take them. And so I was there at a time when I was able to get on board, get on board as everything started changing. Whereas today, if somebody takes up fly fishing today, I can only imagine, if not it being possible, for them to backtrack on what had took place in the last, whatever, 50, 60, 70 years. It's, it's more what they see today, which, as you well know, 
is extremely prevalent so far as what they can look at on YouTube and various things like that. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you got to make a, you got to have a lot of effort to basically go find the books like Vince Marinero books and even stuff way older than that to uh, kind of, you know, to your point, you kind of were brought up kind of at the tail end of a very classical period of fly fishing, right? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Because the way I was in, introduced, inducted to it or whatever, which way you want to look at it, was largely by persons that had been fly fishing for 30, 40, 50 years before. So they were still somewhat engrossed in what their forefathers had shown them or whatever the case may be. You know, and literature back then was somewhat limited com- compared to, to today. I mean, there's the amount of books that are published on fly fishing is, is just unbelievable. I mean, it really, really is. But then back in them times, that was not the case. I, I would say that the two people that really influenced a greater understanding of trap behavior, the insects that they fed on, and, and uh, so far as artificial plays were concerned, most certainly, John Goddard was one of those. The two publications that he wrote, you know, Trout Flies of Stillwater and Trout Fly Recognition. In more in the more modern times, there was nothing that can compete with that. But that said, you know, there are people that had written publications back in the 1800s that even today I thoroughly enjoy to read those because they make sense in so far as what they observed and how they assumed shall we say, an artificial should be created to deceive a fish, which, of course, they did. And they still do today. So I find that fascinating, that kind of history. And, of course, I built up a huge collection of publications that go back to those times. And it, it, it just always fascinates me sometimes. You know, i got a, an incredible memory about what I've read in a book and if you said to me where where I find that, I know exactly which book to go to get that. Let's put it to you like that. So, it, but it still fascinates me and intrigues me to read a lot of that literature of how those individuals thought about what they do. And ultimately, it boils down to one thing, which I'll always maintain is significantly important, and one of the reasons to be a really good fly fisherman, and that is to be a very observant person. In other words, you observe what's going around in front of you. And that in itself will give you a fundamental background of knowledge that otherwise you wouldn't get. You can't you can read books, then you can look at DVDs or YouTube or whatever. It, that will give you knowledge, but it doesn't give you the necessary practical application, you know. So you know, Samuel looks, oh, yeah, you know, that's how you cast. Oh, yeah, they go out the yard, pick up the fly rod, and attempt to try and do what they saw on the DVD. Well, you know, Johnny, that don't happen, <laughs> right? And it's largely, the case with, yeah, it's largely the case with fishing. You know, just because you say, oh, yeah, you know, well, that's a blowing doll, or that's a medium muller, or Danica is the model of make fly or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and you've got to have a great understanding of, We'll talk about this a little more as we go on, but the bottom line is that I would say almost certainly that the people that lifted those publications were also very observant individuals. 
for one reason or the other. I don't necessarily agree with all that I've read, what certain individuals have said, but that's how they saw it. And that, that's really what matters. And then we can always build up on what it was that they said, which may be good, bad, or indifferent. Just depends. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Because that was a time when, you know, there were a lot fewer distractions, right? And people could be much more thoughtful and very, very deliberate, um, which I think is a skill that um, is harder and harder to practice um, kind of in the modern age where there's so many things coming at you all the time and the the return time on ideas and getting stuff out is so fast. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, certainly the, the fly fishermen – that I knew in my early days, as you well know, did not have that. But certainly there was publications, you know, over there in the UK, like the Trout and Salmon, and in later years, um, magazines like Trout Fisherman, which I wrote for for many years, or Salmon, Trout, and Sea Trout. And, of course, that made, shall we say, knowledge more available to the majority. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got that. But that said, I still believe, despite that, that a person that spends time on the water develops ultimately a greater fundamental understanding of what's going on. And of course, assuming they've got relevant skills, which again, we'll talk about later, that allow them to put that into practice. And that's a fascinating thing about fly fishing. And, and you know, I'm often asked this question, you know, and I will tell you this, as much as I believe and enjoy the actual physical act of casting a fly line and catching fish. I still look at the trout as a species of fish. I would derive as much enjoyment if I was casting a spin crankbait out there on the lake and catching a big bass. It, it doesn't matter to me how you pursue the fish that you want to catch, if that's the way to explain it to you. So, I never believe, as some individuals do, that people that fly fish should be put on a president above all others. That's just a nonsense way of thinking. A fish is a fish. It doesn't matter whether it's it's a carp, it's a trout, it's a roach, it's a tent, it's a bream, whatever it is. It's a fish, and you have to learn the skills how to catch it. So don't in any way, you know, be, shall we say, that's the right word I can put it. Thinking you're a, be a better person just because you fly fish. Because it requires skill, of course. But become a skillful angler in any species. It requires skill in the story. The top bass fishermen in the world are extremely skillful anglers. They didn't get there by chuck and chance. They learned a lot more about the species they pursue and how to fish for it. Likewise, guys that fish in the soul, for whatever it be, you know, they develop levels of skill that allow them to be successful. And so, like I said, I've never been of a mind that, you know, well, just because you fly fish or trout, you're a better person than others that fish other. It doesn't matter to me, you know, whether a guy here on the White River wants to go chuck a spinner or fish a bait, whatever the case may be. He's entitled to do that. That's his enjoyment. He's, so what? You know, as long as he ultimately, shall we say, respects the quarry he pursues, I'm fine with that. I don't believe that, you know, everything should be sacred so far as uh, fly fishing is concerned with, with, with one reservation, which is that um, most certainly there needs to be in certain water environments 
regulations that, shall we say, allow those fish to maintain survival in those rivers. In other words, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that you can just go there and do what the hell you want and haul all the fish out. That makes no sense. And so regulations are put into effect that limit the means or methods of how you can fish those waterways. And obviously where fly fish is concerned, to some extent, it uh, gives the fish a certain degree of protection, shall we say, whereas if everybody went out there and started chucking worms and this, that, and the other, it would take no time before they cleaned them out. So I fully respect that, that if there is a, a requirement of regulations to uh, protect those species or whatever, or the catch and release search, I'm absolutely fine with that because there's plenty of other places you can go to if you want to go and catch and kill fish in the story. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Yeah, and it's just that fly fishing, looking in that respect, and as I've already said, you know, high-skilled anglers that fish for any species have got developed high-level skills to be successful. And fly fishing does too. You know, you're not going to be a successful angler just by ultimately, you know, chuck and chance it and this, that, and the other. So, you know, you ask me, you know, how do I believe anglers understand trout behavior across the seasons? Well, once again, I'll go back to the single word of observation. Certainly, you know, most river systems, you can get the information that relates to a given times of the year, the relevant species, and, you know, what are the more likely flies to use to catch those fish. There's two ways to look at that. You know, Dave Whitlock, who was a very close friend of mine since the 80s, and we spent a lot of time fishing together. And, you know, and we were very close on a personal level as well. We had many, many long discussions about different aspects related to fly fishing, so to speak. And, you know, what interested him a great deal was Obviously, myself coming from the UK and him knowing full well that I had a lot of experience of his means, methods, and techniques of the past, which to some extent he didn't quite understand. You know, now don't get me wrong, because Dave Willock, in my opinion, and I fish with a lot of pretty well known people, he was, uh, in my opinion, overall the most skillful fly fisherman here, most certainly in America, I ever known. And he had a thorough understanding of everything that related to trout fly fishing, which was nothing so much to do with the physical act of the casting, chuck the fly out. It was much more than that. Once again, observation. He knew exactly what trout behavior was. In other words, under given prevailing conditions, what those fish would likely do based on the seasons and year whatever it be, the hatches, the water temperature, the beds means and methods of presentation of given flows that you used at that particular time. And that is only something you acquire over time. You can read it and look at it, but you've got to be on the water to really get that thorough fundamental understanding of what is going on and what you need to do to achieve success to do that. And so... To answer the question, 
Do I believe that the majority of anglers understand trout behavior? The answer is I, no, to be honest about it. Um, I, would, I would have a guess to say this, and this is based on, obviously, my experiences with guiding thousands of anglers. There are very few that if you take them out on the water and you say to them, okay, now, what is your best options here and what is it you need to do to set yourself up to enable you to catch the fish? Very few of them would have you give you what I would consider to be a positive answer. They, they almost certainly would say, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to stick a woolly bugger on or I'm going to put an indicator on and this, that, and the other. But where do you go from there? And so ultimately, if the truth of the matter be known, and that's okay, they're paying you for your skill and advice to enable them to do what you want them to do so they can catch fish. You follow what I'm trying to say? So, and then you also deal with the aspects of um, the relative skills related to that, which, which I'll talk about in a little later on. So you also asked me, um, do I believe that anglers understand the food behavior across the seasons and, and this, that, and the other? Well, once again, that's a process of, A, spending time on the water and observation. So, you know, if certain insects are abundant at that time and you see fish visually feeding on them, are you able to identify them? And some will argue, well, it don't really matter if I chuck a this, that, and the other, I'll probably catch a few fish. But is that develop a fundamental understanding of, of uh, betterment of knowledge and skills? No, of course it does not. You ultimately have to suffer the consequences of catching, not catching fish at times if you want to learn more skills. And, you know, interestingly enough, and I always tell the, the guys this, if you spent all day on the river and you didn't catch a damn fish, you learned a lesson, which is, you didn't do nothing right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. So what is it that you needed to do to correct that problem? Well, it's very simple answer. Observation. What is going on out there? And the acquired skills to enable you to fish the means and methods of flies and presentations relative at that prevailing time to induce those fish to take your flies. Now, that said, if I was to give any person a list of, say, 10 flies, I know, having fished all the way around the world, that one or more of those flies will, I guarantee you, catch a trout in any water environment that they live in. It don't matter whether it's a river, whether it's a pond, whether it's a massive reservoir or a natural lock or lake. I know within those 10 flies, the odds are, if you present those in the manner which is, shall we say, acceptable to the trout in those waters, you'll catch some fish. Now, you may not catch a lot of them, whereas other methods may, of course, dramatically increase the numbers of fish you catch. On the other hand, if you don't fish those fries in the right manner that they should be fish, generally, you might not catch nothing. So it's not a question of you not using the right flies. It amounts to more or less that what you're doing is not presenting the, those particular flies to the fish 
in an appropriate manner to induce a take. Now, let me give you an, an example of something. And I use this one as a, shall we say, a, let's just say something I always ask people. Okay, there's two anglers and they're fishing. Well, Bill Smith, he knows nothing more than chucking out an olive woolly bugger. 50 yards downstream, there's whoever, Ted. He's an, he's an angler that likes to fish in, with imitative patterns. So he's going to fish, possibly a hedge here or a pheasant tail or in a nymph mode. Okay, so the guy upstream there starts whacking fish out one or the other on a woolly bugger because that's all he knows what to do. And the other guy downstream catches maybe half the number of fish that the guy whipping the woolly bugger upstream does. So the question I would ask my guys is, well, who do you consider to be the better angler? How are you basing your answer to that? Is it based on the fact that he caught more fish? Or is it based on the fact that that angler downstream fished with more skill, even though he caught less fish? Which one to you would matter? Oh, well, you know, it'll be the guy catching more fish. That's generally their favorite answer. Okay. But we also know that at times that situation go, can be in the op opposite. In other words, the guy fishing the woolly bugger gets next to nothing, whereas the guy downstream fishing the nymph stretches more. But it is an interesting answer you get. You know, how, how does the average angler answer that question? Is it based on numbers of fish or is it based on the fact that he didn't catch as many fish? Or bit, he fished with a lot more skill and understanding of what he was doing. Okay? Yeah. So I always find that interesting to find the answer that I get given to that one. Yeah. Cause it's kind of funny, right? Because for me, you know, I kind of focus on kind of what I call, and I mean, everybody's goal can be different, right? But I always oh, try sure. to, yeah, I try to focus on what I call being a complete angler, right? So I, I would, you know, I, I look at, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? So we have a lot of guys um, where I live that are really, really good at fishing the South Holston uh, to your point. But if you take them somewhere else, they're not nearly as effective because what they know how to do is to fish that type of water that specific piece of water very, very well, but they haven't developed translatable skills. Yeah, that's that's often the case, and I'll tell you why. Because if you fish the same water on a regular basis, you develop a familiarity with that particular water and the habits of the fish in that particular water, and generally speaking, the majority of means or methods that you will catch those fish. And you're, you're quite right. You know, often is the case if they go someplace else, what to them is, um, you know, standard ingrained knowledge on their own waterway doesn't work. And once again, it's simply based on the fact that they don't have much more understanding of what they need to do. Just put it to you like that, because every waterway is different to some extent. That said, as I previously said, you know, I could give you a list of pretty much 10 flies, which I know will work in any trout habitat that exists in the world. That said, 
you also have to, again, as they say, be observing. Because, you know, the predominance of hatches out where you fish, I know you've got a lot of fantastic PMD hatches on that river, right? Mm-hmm. The, well, you may not see that on other rivers. There may be other species that exist on those rivers that are more, shall we say, seen on a regular basis by the trout. You know, for example, there may be a lot of stonefly nymphs in that river. We don't have those here in the White River. You know, there may be in that particular river very little in the way of crustaceans, i.e. sarbugs or scuds, but there may be a greater predominance of other species. So your orientation towards the methods of fishing, to some extent, but not totally, have to be, if you want to be more successful, be related to the behavior of the fish in that river based on prevailing conditions. And, of course, for the most part of it, what do the fish generally see on a regular basis insofar as their natural food is concerned? I'm not suggesting for one moment that just because there's a whole abundance of whatever it is, sailboats in that river, that should ultimately be what you should fish to catch your fish. Of course, it will. But it would also restrict your greater abilities of knowledge and skill to fish other things if you just specifically relate to fishing that way all the time because that was your comfort zone. And so you, the thing about the fascination of fly fishing, more than anything else, is that once you have acquired many, many different levels of skills, be it for dry fly fishing, whether it be nymph fishing, whether it be fishing emergers, whether it be fishing soft tackles, whether it be fishing uh, traditional wake flies or streamers or whatever, it, it gives you a choice. On any given day, what is it I want to do to catch fish today? It, you know, regardless, you know, I, the numbers of fish I catch, irrelevant or otherwise. For example, you know, I might choose one day to go out there and just fish dry flies. Yeah, fine. You know, I know the odds of catching a lot of fish are against me because that's just not the prevailing conditions that are inducive to do that. But so what? I enjoyed myself doing it. Did I learn something from doing it? Yes, of course I did. If I didn't do it, I wouldn't know any different, right? And so what I try to tell people is that, you know, to broaden your outlook on different levels of acquired skill, you have to accept days where you ain't going to catch much. And I'm not suggesting that at the time you may or may not have been doing something wrong. It just may have been at that time the fish weren't interested in what you were doing. But you don't necessarily know that because a fish can't tell you, right? So. If you have a day where you don't catch a fish, there are reasons as to why you didn't. And, of course, one of them obviously is the fact that what you were doing was not going to work. But there may be other reasons for it, too. And, and that's part of the game. You know, but a really skilled angler, if catching fish is of significant importance to him more than anything else, he's going to have the armory to use different means and methods of skill i.e. by the styles of flies he used and means and methods of presentation, whatever the case may be, to likely induce fish when even under, you know, the prevailing conditions, they're going to be tough to catch. You know, typically when you get very, very low cold water conditions, that's going to be one of them. Or you've got lower DO levels in the water, which, you know, fishy jerks not comfortable to eat in the first place, it's that and the other. So you're going to get tough days regardless of what skill levels you've got. That said, I've always told anglers, you know, that 
the fact that you know what to do on this particular water because it produces results for you is not the only answer that you need to have in your head. You need to go out there on some days and do stuff you've never done before and see what happens. You might be surprised. On the other end, you may say, well, the hell with this. I ain't catching nothing. I ain't doing that again. I'm going back to fishing, whatever it is, the woolly bugger. It's a defeatist attitude, right? So you didn't learn nothing because you went back to your comfort zone. So you ask me, um, you know, what common problems do I see on the water? And I assume what you're asking me is what do I see anglers doing, which I would consider to be wrong. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I guess what I kind of think about, Davey, is kind of if we talk about, you know, how, you know, when I think about it, you know, people think of you as the wet fly guy, but like, as we said, you've done a ton of stuff. And so I guess if we come all the way back, back out of that and we talk about, you know, what do you think is required to be a complete angler, right? And we've talked a little bit about understanding trout and food behavior, but, you know, it might help for people that are, you know, want to, you know, have a more versatile skill set and be able to catch fish in different places and in varying conditions, you know, in your mind's eye, you know, I know casting is one of those things, but what are the handful of things you think you have to, the skills you have to possess to be considered a complete angler? Oh, okay. Well, as you all know, you know, I, I've won a lot of competitions fishing by different means or methods that would be necessary in that particular water, be it fishing, dry clay, wet clay, or whatever the case may be. The first thing I would say is this. Learn to be accomplished at different given skills. And ultimately, one has to accept that the most effective, there are two effective methods that one should acquire skills for. And ultimately, the first one is nymph fishing. In other words, presenting the fly on or near the bed of the river. Why? Because for 90% of the time, that's where the fish are. Now, <clears throat> This is a thing that I want to say this. Okay. So do I consider fishing an egg new fishing? No. I consider new fishing to fish a fly that in some way represents a natural food source that's there. I don't consider an egg to be within that. Let's put it that I, I know catch fish. I'm not arguing about that. And I may eat eggs at times. I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is become a, a skillful, experienced nymph fisherman by the many different methods that you can apply, whether it be with the indicator fishing, whether it's what they now call the Euro-style nymph fishing techniques, whatever the case may be. Don't become efficient at that. The next thing you're going to deal with is the surface, i.e. So you're going to be dealing with hatches, and you're going to deal with various stages of emergence of specific insects, and what the fish are doing so far as taking those. Are they taking them as emergers? Are they taking those as they're moving up through the water column to the surface? Are they taking them as emerged duns or are they taking them as spinners? I mean, you've got a number of different possibilities as to why those fish choose to take that natural insect at a given stage of its life cycle. And a well-rounded, experienced fly fisherman will know that. He will be able to look at that fish as seen, surface feeding, 
and pretty much tell you exactly what they're doing by watching the way that fish rises to that particular insect. And obviously the species of insect concern gives you that clue. You know, you get a very different rise form, shall we say, to a caddis as you would do to, say, a little tiny midge or a blooming olive or something like that. They're much slower purposeful uh, rises to those species. So that also gains you knowledge. So what I'm saying here is that learn to become a really skillful nymph fisherman as best as you can because nets are going to be dealt with fishing in the surface. And like I said, understanding the species that are prevalent at the time will tell you generally how those fish will take that species during the stages of its emergence from its nymph or pupa to the time it is a winged insect and it flies off the water. Don't forget that they come back to lay their eggs and therefore they become spinners in the case of mayflies or dead caddis or whatever the case may be. So you must learn those different skills how to present and choice of right flies to that. Now, we move on from that. So you want to learn more skills that can catch those fish. If those fish are on or near the bed of the river, is it necessary to fish nymphs? No, it's not. I'm excluding eggs because I don't really put those into the category. Let's put it to you like that. Um, Sandworm worms and stuff like that, yeah, that's fine, you know, but, you know, in a lot of cases, most rivers <laughs> don't have worms that are, are resembling the artificials that are chucked in. Let's put it to you like that. But anyway, the next thing I would tell you to do is you learn to fish. In the case of surface fishing, yes, I, as I said, you learn, you learn to fish the various stages, whether they're the um, natural insects moving up through the water column, whether in the stages of uh, transition in emergence, whether they're duns or adults and whether they're spinners. So you require different flies to do that, obviously. And, of course, ultimately, the surface fly you're going to fish would be a dry fly. I will tell you this. In all my years of experience of watching other anglers and this, that, you know, to be a really skillful dry fisherman, a dry fly fisherman, probably, in most cases, requires a lot more skill than most of the other methods of fly fishing. And most of that relates to your ability as a caster. That's the first thing. And second, your ability to control a drag-free drift. And that's not easy for the majority of people to do that. There are di different means and methods of presentations, of course. We're not arguing about that. They could be direct upstream, they could be slightly across stream, or they could be downstream. More to the point, the means and methods of approach to those presentations is very much based on what you yourself do, i.e., what position are you in? Are you upstream of the fish? Are you whatever the case may be? You have to be in a physical position to be able to make an efficient, effective presentation of a dry fly without drag to those fish. And in a lot of cases, when I watch our persons do that, they're wrong. Instantly, they make a cast, they get dragged. And reason, there are two reasons. One is they're in the wrong position to start with, in other words, where they're standing. And secondly, they don't know how to make the cast 
which eliminates drag, at least for a, a period of time, that doesn't spook those fish. And that requires skill. And I would have to say that dry fry fishing, more than anything, requires a lot more skill than most other methods. Mostly because, you know, when you're new fishing, you're essentially fishing a short, particularly when you wage fishing, incidentally, you're fishing a relatively short section of water. In other words, upstream, across to you, and downstream. So you're fishing short sections of water. Where dry fry fishing is concerned, you may have to make significantly longer casts, and you may have to control your line to eliminate drag, but at times, significantly long periods of time, more so than you would generally if you were nymph fishing. So I would tell you that, in my opinion, to become an expert dry fly fisherman, you've got to be skillful at a lot of different things. And ultimately, your casting skill is primarily one of those. The next being your ability to control a drag-free drift for effectively a significant period of time. Also, more to that, your understanding of the fish. You know, you you can figure out if you do it long enough when to make a cast and when not to. You know, consistently casting over fish due to serrate rise is not the thing to do. You know, the worst thing that you can do ultimately is wise to fish up. And if you consistently keep casting that fly over that fish, you will do that. Generally speaking, if the fish sees your fly presented in a, in a good and proper manner two or three times and it refuses it, it figured it out. In other words, it don't like the fly. And you've got a, a number of choices. You, you change the fly, you give the fish a rest, and you go back to it again. Continually pounding that fish is absolutely a big mistake. And you see people do that all the time. They stand there like a heron. I call that the heron stance. And the difference between them and the heron is the heron stands damn still, but the angler moves around and waves his arm around and just sat the right? And so they put the fish down, and despite the fact that the fish are still visually seen rising, if indeed they are after being lined and splashed for Lord knows how many times, they're never going to catch them. Never. As long as they stand there doing what they're doing, they ain't never going to catch them. And I'll go back to the what I just said, Marvin, that in my opinion, to become a skillful dry fly fisherman, you have to develop skills that, generally speaking, as a new fisherman, you don't, because essentially, as long as you can get your flies somewhere close or near the bed of the river for a relatively period of time, a short period of time within that drift, the odds are you'll catch fish. I'm not suggesting for one moment that the, the, the fly you use, this, that, and the other, is the issue, why you don't, because it, it may well be, because the certain flies that do work productively well based on the nature of the particular water you're fishing, you know, whether it's slow water, moving water, is it fast, rocky, all of those require somewhat of a different approach. Essentially based on how you make the leader tippet sections up and the, the addition of weight if needed and, and the particular flies you use. But I still go back to say that generally speaking within 10 flies, um, there would be nymphs within those 10 flies that would catch you some fish if you present them in the right way. I understand what you're saying for, for dry fly fishing, and it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because 
you know, the first thing you try to do is, you know, move your move the angler to make the cast as effective, potentially effective as possible, right? But when you start out, you really can't cast well enough that you can move yourself in a position. And then obviously when you get really good and your skills are better, you can, you know, fish effectively from lot from the same place um, with having more difficult casts. I mean, how, how does an angler, because, you know, the typical, you know, putting cones out in the yard stuff is not uh-huh. going to help you solve those dry fly puzzles, whether, you know, you're trying to get most, you know, you want to get most of your line in the lane or how long can you mend? I mean, what's your suggestion for anglers to be able to solve that problem? All right. That's a good question you asked me. Okay. There are two aspects to that. You develop that one is casting skill, one is presentation skills. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the first thing. So to develop good casting skills, the first thing is if you go fishing, you do not put a fly on (laughs) because ultimately your brain's orientated towards fishing. And so when I teach people casting techniques and skills, First and foremost, I, I, the water is not any show. I don't need to be on water. I can do that on, on the grass, whatever. And I watch exactly what they're doing and what they're doing wrong and try to correct the problems that they have. And in most cases, there are many of them. That said, if the person concerned has fished for some considerable time, ultimately you, they are developing inherent faults for one reason or the other. And it developed muscle memory and it's kind of ingrained in their brain. It can be at times virtually impossible for them to get out of that, to be honest about it, because it's like me saying to you, you know, okay, if I want you to throw this tennis ball, you're going to pick that ball up and throw it, right? And if I try to tell you I would need you to do it a different way to improve the distance that you're doing, yeah, you may try to get some um, knowledge of me uh, as to why I want you to do that. But the odds are you'll go back to doing what you did before. And that's largely what happens with guys that have developed, unfortunately, bad inherent faults in their casting skill. To be honest about it, if the truth be known, the overall average skill of casters is, is not good by any stretch of imagination. Certainly, they get away with the limited skill levels that they've got based on the means and methods that they fish. Let's put it like that. But if they're forced or have a need to, to, shall we say, cast in a different manner to what is ingrained, they're in trouble. In other words, you say to go, okay, you know, see that fish is rising over there, 47 foot. I need you to make a cast. I need that fly to present it six feet above that fish. They probably couldn't do it. They, or if they get it out there, they do it in such a way they run a fish off. So first and foremost, I would spend time with them in a non-fishing situation then. Let's put it to you like that, um, regardless of whether it's on the grass or ideally a pond, not moving water. Let's put it like that. If you can uh, help them overcome some of those, and I'll tell you one of the biggest faults, ultimately, is hand casting. In other words, for most general trout fishing, you've got three three what we call relative positions of, of, of fly casting. One is wrist, 
the next one is forearm, the next one is your arm. In other words, your whole arm is moving. And when, that is one of the biggest mistakes for general trout fly fishing. I'm not talking about guys in 70, 80, 90 feet in a saltwater environment where you've got a double oar and this, that, and the other. General trout fishing does not demand that. If you have the fundamental understanding of load, how to load that rod sufficiently in the back cast, that's it. So, shall we say, consensus about that is that the majority of anglers use way too much arm, in other words, upper arm. And that tends to cause the fly line to do things that ideally you don't want it to do, particularly when you cast accurately or you want to make, you know, shall we say, better presentation values and things. Because initially, how that line lands on that water determines what you can and you cannot do with it thereafter. If you make a bad sloppy cast on that water, the odds are you're never going to correct to get an effective drift. If you make a good in, instant presentation, it's easier to correct that. If you make a bad one, the odds are you cannot correct that. So, and a lot of that is, relates to the anglers using too much arm. In other words, the rod tip is rotating and not tracking in the straight line path as it should. In other words, it's creating like a semi arc. And guess what? The fly line follows suit wherever the rod tip goes. And you're trying to throw the line straight from a back cast that's nearly hitting the ground behind you. Okay. And that's not going to happen. So that's the first thing. The next thing would be presentation casts. Now, unless you've acquired good basics, fundamentals, casting skills, the odds are, for the most part, you're not going to make really good presentation casts for the reasons that I just said, which are you cannot throw the line in. A accurate line or presentation value to start with. So when it comes to teaching people a lot of what we call presentation casts, like slack line casts or puddle line casts or different men's and whatever the case may be, to lay up flies, and we're talking about dry flies instantly here, to be presented in a manner where they're, shall we say, acceptable to how the fish see them, it don't happen. Now, you can get away with that with a caddis. I give you that. You can drag a caddis fly on the surface and wham, the fish come up and whack them. But that's generally not the case where, you know, mayflies and a lot of other species are concerned. So I would tell any person that's going to be listening to this program, if you think you have got bad casting skills, whether you admit it or not, here's another matter because the majority of people do, go and try and get at least some instruction from a casting instructor that knows what he's doing. That's the important thing. He may or may not be able to help you. As I've said, if you've developed serious inherent bad faults, which I said have become muscle memory or they're pretty much in your head, it's going to be a tough deal for you to get out of that. If you're prepared to spend hours and hours out there, you may well do it. But it will be a tough call to, to get out of that. That I know. Ultimately, if anybody is listening to this program and you're a newbie to fly fishing or interested to do so, go and get good casting instruction before you go on the downside path and develop those bad faults. Because the odds are 
If you try to do it yourself, it will never happen. Granted, there are some individuals that have got natural ability. And for the most part, most people don't. And it doesn't matter, you know, what aspect of skill it is they want to aspire to. For many, it's a hard game to get to that higher level. For others, and I teach shotgun shooting as well also, some people have got a natural ability to learn quick and get good quick. And others, it's, it's, it's just not that form. You know, they enjoy what they do, but they're never going to achieve those high levels of skill. So that what, that's what I would tell you about, you know, casting. You know, you've got to learn to be a, a fundamentally a, a good basic caster with good fundamental skills because if you don't have that, it's going to cost you because there are a lot of circumstances and situations demanding at that time for presentations of flies or techniques of fishing that you will not be able to deploy because you don't have those skills. The easiest, I would say, probably for the majority, obviously, you know, is first and foremost across and downstream fishing with um, a streamer or a woolly bugger. And that's okay, you know, because it catches fish. And I don't have fun with that at all. But if that's the way you're going to pursue your long-term, shall we say, success in fly fishing, well, that's fine. But guess what? There's a whole bunch of uh, relative skills and techniques of fishing that you sure are missing out on. And I know don't work for the most part. If you learn those skills, you, you would probably enjoy a lot of them a lot more than just doing what you're doing, chucking a fly across steam and pulling it back. Um, likewise, you know, when new fishing with an indicator is concerned, it's it's generally overall a, a, one of the easiest ways to teach people how to catch fish with a nymph for obvious reasons. Pretty much all they got to do is get it out there on the water, control the line to a certain extent, and watch the indicator. And if it goes down, bop, you raise the rod and you hook the fish. That's okay. It's a basic level of skill that they understand. But learn more advanced skill levels because advanced skill levels will ultimately, I guarantee you, catch you more fish that otherwise you're not going to catch because of the limitations of what you're working with at this present time, okay? Yeah. And so, you know, we talk about casting being the foundation, right? And you've got to, you know, you know, get the straight line path down and not throw the, uh, the loop, the, uh, the big arc, right? Um, and, and then hopefully you do that and you're able to make, you know, the presentation cast. And I guess we kind of put that together with trying to build a better understanding of trout and food behavior. You know, what else do we kind of need to kind of put in the pot to kind of have this complete angler stew? Is there anything else we need to kind of add? Yeah. Okay. If I'm initially asked a question by a person that comes to me and says, Hey, Dave, you know, I want to land out to fly fish. And obviously, the first thing I'm going to tell them, fantastic but you're going to have to learn how to cast because they see people doing it and they're in wonderment because they see this line going back and forth, back and forth, you know, which is kind of, if you like, the uh, the magic of perception, you know, what fly fishing is all about. Is that, that 
physical line you see in the water, whereas, you know, somebody that throws a crank or a spin bait, their line goes forward, right? Generally not back, that said. And so I tell them this. I say, that's fantastic, you know? Um, obviously, I ask them whether they have equipment. If they don't, that's fine. I got plenty. And then we set them up with a lesson. And I can tell pretty quick what their likelihood of ability is going to be by the manner in which they pick up what it is you're trying to teach them so far as a basic, simple overhead cast, which is you've got 20 foot of line in front of you on the ground. You're going to raise the rod. You're going to stop the rod at a given position. You're going to allow time for the line to track behind you and before you load the rod and you bring it forward. Do they develop that sense of feel in their hand or not? Some people do straight away and other people don't. Well, you know, they say, well, I can't feel nothing. Okay, what? Well, you explain to the reason why. It's because most times they're not moving that line sufficiently fast enough into that back cast to physically feel that rod under some degree of pressure, both in the back cast and the forward cast. You have to develop that sense of feel. And also a sense of timing and and you can you can com- convey that to people and and they got to base, get that basic understanding down period before you can go any further so for example they do well with a 20 feet line okay so let's add another 10 foot line or 30 feet line in other words you've got the rod length, which being 9 to 10 feet, but you've got, say, another 20 feet of line in front, which makes it 30 foot to the end of the flying line. And if you had a 9-foot leader on there, you're essentially looking at 40 foot to determination of from where you stand to where that fly is on the end. So that's 40 foot, right? So you just extend the line a little more, and that requires a little different approach to, say, 20 feet of line. Why? Because you've got to move the line faster. You've got more line out there. You've got to load that rod quicker. Add another 10 foot, same thing. You have to load that rod much faster than you do with 20 feet or 30 feet. And the further that line is extended, the same thing applies. You have to move that rod faster because you've got physical weight to move that line. Vice versa, you have to allow, allow a little more time for that fly line to extend behind you before you come forward. And really, that is the initial basic approach to getting somebody to learn to fly cast. Of course, in most cases, well, you know, can we go fishing? We want to catch a fish. Yeah, that's fine. I guarantee you I could take that person out in the boat, and as long as they can chuck 20 or 30 feet of flying in front of them the indicator, and have got some reasonable ability to react when the indicator goes down and set the hook on that fish and thereafter control it once they've got it hooked, they'll catch a fish. And oftentimes, you know, can take absolute beginners out there and you're going to catch fish. Fortunately for us here on the White River, there's a fair large number of stock trout which make life a little easier. That's not going to be the case on a, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not going to be the case on a river that's, uh, you know, even a little more difficult for an experienced angler. I'm not saying that they might not catch the odd one or two fish because there's always stupid fish in the river anyway, but 
certainly, you know, if, if you have got a waterway that, you know, has got, um, you know, stock trout in it, it, it life's going to be a little easier for them. But that's okay, you know, because th- they've gone through the process of learning a simple basic cast and a basic method of fishing that allowed them to catch fish. And ultimately, that may well be something that they wish to pursue for the rest of their life. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating review in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to head over to www.nor-vice.com to see if Norvice will be coming to a show near you in 2024. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everybody.